Hello and welcome to It's Lit, where all things literary live at the root. I'm Maisha Kai, Managing Editor of The Glow Up, and today is very special for two reasons. One, it's our 50th episode! (laughs) Thank you so much for continuing to listen to our little show. It truly is a labor of love. But the other reason today is special is because we have the incredibly fun, incredibly talented Phoebe Robinson on the show. Now, if you don't know already, Phoebe is a comedian, an actress, a podcaster, producer, author, and now publisher as well. That's right. Last summer, Penguin Random House announced the launch of Phoebe's publishing imprint, the aptly named Tiny Reparations, also the name of her production company, which focuses on amplifying diverse voices in both fiction and nonfiction. In addition to being so well-known for her stand-up and her critically acclaimed podcast, Two Dope Queens, So Many White Guys, and Black Frasier, Phoebe is also a New York Times best-selling author of two books, Everything's Trash, But It's Okay, and You Can't Touch My Hair and Other Things I Still Have to Explain. Now, Phoebe has just released her third collection of essays called Please Don't Sit on My Bed in Your Outside Clothes, and we had the absolute pleasure of getting to talk to her about it. It was truly such a joy talking with Phoebe. She has such amazing energy and I love what she's doing to promote diverse voices. We talked about everything from her writing process to how she's selecting what books to publish at Tiny Reparations and even defying society's expectations as a woman in her mid-30s. We covered it all and I can't wait to share it with you. So without further delay, please enjoy Phoebe Robinson. Phoebe, welcome to It's Lit. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. Not as excited as we are. I'm I'm very, very geeked about this conversation. We've had some amazing people on here. And you were in good company. I'm and, and now I'm in good company because I get to talk to you. And I get to talk to you about your latest book, Please Don't Sit on My Bed in Your Outside Clothes, which <laughs> if you were raised in or around a black family, you have heard this phrase many times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but before we dig into that, we do have a little icebreaker that we like Mm -hmm. to do here on It's Lit, uh, because this is a podcast about Black writers, Black thinkers, Black ideas, Black humor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We like to ask all of our authors, is there uh, a book or books that you found instrumental, inspiring, groundbreaking in terms of your own path as a writer? Was there something that just blew your mind? What book or books might that be? Mm, That's a good question. I mean... I feel like I was always an avid reader um, ever since I was a kid. And then when I started doing stand-up in 2008, my reading like took a severe hit. And so I wasn't reading for a while and I got back into it. And so I would say of recent memory, one of the books that like really got me back into just loving books again was Roxane Gay's Bad Feminist. Like I just thought it was so phenomenal and funny and smart and vulnerable. And I really think she just really masters the art of feeling like you're in the room with her, but also being elevated and intelligent. So I, I really love that book a lot. And I think, you know, that's one of the books that made me be like, oh yeah, books are so fun. I know you're doing stand-up girl, but you need to start reading like as much as you can again. So yeah. 
Okay, I love that answer. And I love it because it's a new one for us. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. think anybody has cited in, in, in well over 40 episodes to date that we have taped. I don't think anybody cited Roxanne Gay, who is a brilliant, brilliant mind. Mm-hmm. So that is dope. Um, and I love that you talked about how she made you feel like you were in the room. Cause I would say the same thing about this book, uh, which to me was, what you would probably call hashtag relatable content. Um, because, <laughs> you know, I mean, you and I are both Midwestern girls who spent huge portions of our lives in New York, you know, have both worked in and around the, the entertainment industry, both writers. Uh, I, I, I don't know if I call myself a U2 super fan, but in my former life as a, a singer songwriter, I did cover U2 quite a bit. So I felt nice. seen <laughs> by. Please don't sit on my bed in your outside clothes. This was a, a really, a really fun read. And I guess, you know, starting from the beginning here, you know, I, I'm going to be paraphrasing. When you talk about your reasons for writing this book, which you seem to have written most of during the pandemic. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, which is a time I think people either found tremendous inspiration or zero <laughs> inspiration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A lot of us just sat there frozen, like. <laughs> 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 but, uh, you know, wh- why did you, you know, in your, in your words, for, for those who have not read this book yet, wh- why, why did you feel like you needed to capture this particular horrible moment yeah. <laughs> on the page? Yeah. I mean, I really wasn't planning on writing a book during quarantine. And, you know, I had, I was an early adopter, my boyfriend and I. So we started quarantining like March, beginning of March of 2020. And, you know, with that, that meant like no more stand up. That meant like he wasn't on the road. I wasn't on the road. A lot of my, like I was shooting a show for Comedy Central that had to stop. I was going to shoot my special that couldn't happen. And so truly everything I had planned for, for 2020, like we were both like, it's going to be our year. And then <laughs> <laughs> like, like dumbasses. And then it fully was not our year. Um, the one thing that was a good sort of source of normalcy was reading. Like every morning I would wake up early, like, I don't know, like 7 a.m. and just like make a cup of tea and then just read. Cause I was like, I don't know what's going on, but I feel safe with books. And because, you know, my boyfriend and I hadn't been, we weren't like day to day contact all the time because we were both traveling for work. And then we went to quarantining together for like 24 seven interaction. I just sort of like noticed the ways that we kind of got each other's way. And it was funny to me and also interesting. And, you know, I was thinking about that. I was thinking about, of course, the performative allyship that was happening last summer and sort of me kind of learning how to be a boss in quarantine, which is bizarre. Um, so I, all these things were sort of percolating in my mind. And I was like, this could be another essay collection. So I hit up my lit agent, Robert. I kind of told him things I wanted to focus on. He was like, write that book proposal. And then he was like, I know we were, we were talking to my publisher plume before COVID about my imprint. And he was like, we should pick that back up again. And I was like, it's COVID. Like the world's falling apart. I don't know if anyone's going to care about an imprint. And he was like, this is it's something I've wanted since he and I met in 2014 and he was like, books are your safe space. They're safe space for a lot of people. So let's try and get this imprint going. And that's, we sold the book and the imprint together as a package deal. And it it's working out so far, knock on wood. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I just kind of wanted to speak about this time, but not in a way 
hopefully, I don't, I, I feel like my book is uplifting as opposed to depressing, if that makes sense. And I want people to laugh and, and sort of see themselves reflected, especially like the essay that I wrote about deciding to be child free. I know a lot of people are wrestling with that decision. And so I was like, let me just be honest about how my boyfriend and I, um, came to that decision and what that means for our lives. And so it feels like it's of the moment, but I also think that it's evergreen. So I think I was able to strike that balance. Well, definitely, you know, I I love that you touched on the essay about being child-free because as one of those people, and also somebody in a long-distance relationship who's having that cohabitation discussion, again, relatable. Um, Yeah, I think, you know, you really, you really kind of dig in there and, and it is, it is both funny, but also quite poignant. I think for those of us who are on that side of it, whether circumstantially or by choice, um, or both, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> you also have a, have a note in here. I think it was in Phoebeisms about pets, for instance. And it's like, <laughs> you're, amb- and I was like, it is sad, but I think I'm equally ambivalent about pets and children. Like, I'm like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> or I should say, I should say parenting children. I love children, but uh, yeah. <laughs> having them in your house is different. <laughs> you know, so, you know, I, I, I think that that was, um, and you, and you do this pretty early on. And it's, I, I was wondering, I found myself wondering, and obviously this is your third collection, but if there was like a dismantling of something that was happening there at this particular point in your life, because I do think this is, you know, I'm a few years ahead of you, but the age at that, that mid 30 zone is that kind of age where we kind of butt our heads up against a lot of the expectations. I think that mm-hmm. maybe we had for our lives growing up or that other people have for us. And I wondered if maybe that was like a, a, a jumping off point for you because of that. Yeah. I mean, I think. Anyone would be aligned if they are in their mid thirties and they're not starting to be a little reflective about their lives. You know what right. I mean? And you can't help it because that is that is a time period where I think now people are doing more like big, bigger life decisions in their thirties as opposed to their twenties. You know, so it's like, do I want to get married? Do I want to have kids? Where do I want to? You know. What where what city do I want to live in? What do the next what do I want the next ten years of my life to look like? Because when you're in your twenties and you're thinking like thirties, that feels like so far away and blah blah blah. And then now I'm in my mid thirties, I still feel pretty young, but I'm like the next ten years I'm going to hit forty five. That's like not that's not a joke. You know what I mean? Oh, come that's on like, in. You, the water's warm. The water's warm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that is like you really have to. Time, I feel like, goes faster the older you get, and you really have to make decisions and be fully present, or you're going to wake up one day and be like, my life passed me by, and I didn't do the things that I wanted to do. So I think this book, for me, I think it's the best book I've written. I think it is the most reflective, in a way, just because of where I'm at in my life, coupled with the quarantine factor. And I think I just wanted to be honest about that, because I think no, I think I know when I see on social media and people act like being their thirties is so old. I'm like, it's not. It's so young. It's so young. You have so much opportunity. And so I really kind of wanted to be like, okay, yeah, like I'm not married yet and I don't have kids, but that doesn't mean that my life isn't worthy or that I'm not contributing in some way. So I think that's kind of the message that I wanted to get across to people 
to to be like, take stock of your life and really appreciate the shit that you're doing instead of like letting society tell you like, if you're not doing these like 12 things and you're not measuring up, like screw that. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Well, I mean, it also kind of gives us this opportunity again to continually to keep recalibrating what it means to be an adult, right? Because I mm-hmm. also feel very young. Like even being in my 40s, I'm like, I still feel pretty young. But now it's it's like you can't really be in your mid-30s and not be like, okay, I'm grown. Like I am. I can't yeah. really keep playing. Like <laughs> stop playing. You grown. But But at the same time, you know. Let's recalibrate what adulthood looks like and what our metrics are for what adulthood looks like. I do want to double back, though, because, mm-hmm. uh, as you noted, this is the first book on your imprint, Tiny Reparations Books, um, not to be confused with Tiny Reparations Productions, which is your production company. Go you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and you have the the distinction of being the first, at least to the best of our knowledge, the first author we've hosted on It's Lit who is also, I mean, you know, self-publishing and nothing to do with the Black writing community, but to be the first author who has an imprint (laughs) of their own. Um, And I want to talk a little bit about what that really, you know, I know you talk about it in the book, but I want to talk about what that means for you. Because we're, you know, obviously we're, you know, you talked about this kind of like performative allyship that happened last year. And we saw a lot of that of, of... of this, like, oh, and now we're going to include you in these spaces that you could have been included in this whole time, but now we've just noticed that you're not here, and let's make sure that you're here. (laughs) Raise your hand if you're present, you know? (laughs) And so it's different, obviously, to be handed those reins by an entity to say, okay, so yeah, we don't have what we need, but we're also not going to assume that we know how to do that. So why don't you come in and do that? We'll pay you to do that. Um but talk about Tiny Reparations books, because, I mean, I think we're at a really exciting time. I know for us, we launched this podcast uh, just about a year ago, and we launched it specifically because it was so exciting to us as Black writers who love Black books and who love Black writers to see so many doing so many things in the space, and we just couldn't think of a better time. Um, Why do you want to get into it? I mean, I've always been obsessed with books. Whenever I buy new books, I, I, I sniff them. I'm not going <laughs> to you know what's so funny I just looked up that word the other day and like I'm like what is that thing when you love the smell of books and yeah anybody I'm I'm in the middle of moving right now and I was joking that most of my boxes are books like it's like it's not clothes it's not books (laughs) same my boyfriend and I are are trying to move too and like I I was like oh I keep filling box after box with books I have this many books and my boyfriend's like yeah we live in a library what are you talking about um, but with this imprint, I mean, I really feel a sense of pride. You know what I mean? Like, I love books so much and the publishing industry is overwhelmingly white, which is absurd considering the numbers. And we think that college educated black women are actually the biggest readers 
in this country, it really makes no sense that we're not better reflected within the industry, that gay people aren't better reflected in the industry, that women in general aren't better reflected in the industry. And so for me, I was just sort of like, and this is a through line, I think, with all my work is that I want to have a platform for myself, yes, to get my work out, but I don't want to be the only voice in the room. So I want to make sure I have space for other people to come in and show off their talent and get their work out there. And just remembering the pushback that I got when I was shopping around my first book in 2015, You Can't Touch My Hair, and how in 2015, people were telling my lit agent books written by Black women aren't relatable. Like, that was just six years ago where people felt comfortable enough in the industry to just be like that ignorant, being like, no, those don't sell. And in I'm their like, outside voice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In their outside voice. They weren't thinking it. They were like saying this to Robert. And it was just, you know, to be at this place six years later and to have my own imprint, I just wanted to make sure that Whoever comes to submit their work to me, they're not going to be rejected based on their identity, the way they look, their sexuality, their orientation. And I really want, there's so many brilliant writers out there who just don't have that support. And I've been working with my editor, Amber Oliver, who's Black, um, and she's fantastic. And, you know, one of the things I said, I was like, I want to have some uplifting. I want to have some joy books and selections. Like, I don't want it to be, you know, just doom and gloom and Black trauma. And we've been talking about this since the beginning. And I can't tell you how many slavery narratives are still being pitched to us. And I I understand it because that is what publishing publishes, right? They don't publish black rom-coms. They don't publish like Latina, like spy narratives. Like they're, they're only want to sort of travel in people of color and trauma. And so I get why those books are being written and submitted because people are seeing what sells and what doesn't. But at the same time, I'm like, we, we have more to talk about in the black community than slavery. We just do y'all like, and we need publishing to not only reflect front-facing terms of authors, we need marketing and publicity. That is almost always white. Just across the board, across like, no matter what the imprint is, no matter what the publisher is, it's like 95% white. And so you're going, well, if I'm a Black author and I'm trying to get this work out and everyone I'm looking at in the marketing department is white, how do I think this conversation is going to go? And so I think it's not, that's what I meant about the performative allyship. It's it's not just enough that me or Roxanne Gay have a, a imprint. It's like the publishers need to change. Marketing publicity needs to change. Editors need to change. Like if you are not financially stable or have parental support, to break into this industry as an editorial assistant with the pay that you're giving is almost impossible. So there's a class issue as well. There's a lot that needs to be unpacked that can't be you know, sort of band-aid over with just like two brown faces and like everything's cool, right? It's like, no. Sorry, I get so worked up about it because it's... it's, No, I love it. It's (laughs) infuriating. No, I love it because I think think we need to be passionate about how our words are put out into the world. And I think we need to be uh, passionate about not only who writes them, but to your point, who's working behind the scenes to make sure that those things get out? Who's engaging with Black Twitter? Who's making sure that like, you know... 
the work lands and resonates and, and, and lands in the right hands, uh, you know, so to speak. Who's going to get a joke? You know, who's going to get it when you put Chart and Maya Angelou in a sentence? I mean, you know, <laughs> <laughs> which I'd never seen done before. Kudos to you. I was like, wow, I didn't, didn't know those two things could coexist in, in one sentence. <laughs> <laughs> but it was entertaining, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> so, you know, let's talk about format. Um, you know, because this is your third collection of essays. And I and and I think people, you know, it's interesting because obviously there was a time, I'd even say 10 years ago, that this was not like a huge thing, you know, collections of essays. And now it's like a very common thing to have this, you know, instead of these like long form narratives or, you know, mm-hmm. major through lines. Um now obviously you also, you know, you're incredibly well known as as a stand-up comic. And I think that those two things kind of dovetail very well. But can you talk about the appeal of the essay <laughs> as art form for you? Yeah, I mean, I think it is, in some ways, essay writing feels like letter writing. Like I'm just writing a really long letter to like a friend who lives overseas. And so I really like, it's sort of like, especially the the essay I wrote about the self-care industry, like to me, that felt like I'm building my argument. You know, like I, I'm about to go into court. Here's my argument. <laughs> I'm going to lay out all my points. I got some jokes in here. I got some seriousness in here. I got some stats in here. And you feel as though when you finish that essay, you don't feel like I covered everything that could be talked about with this this topic, but you do have this sense of, okay, I really nailed my point of view and got it across. And so I really enjoy... Essay. I enjoy reading essays because it's so nice, especially like when you first wake up in the morning or right before you go to bed and you just only maybe have half an hour to read. You go, okay, I can read an essay and then go to sleep. It doesn't feel that daunting, but it's not like, you know, I can't go, I'm just going to read five pages of Toni Morrison and then go to sleep. You know what I mean? Like that's (laughs) like, I don't think anyone has done that. So Yeah, it's yeah, it's not the same. <laughs> that, that, that could get a little. That could be a little quirky. Um, yeah, you know. But obviously, one thing that happens, well, you know, whenever you're writing anything that's, I guess, more memoir based, you know, whether it's mm-hmm. an essay or a full on memoir, you know, obviously, you have to deal with the other personalities that make inevitably make their way to your story. <laughs> In your case, you know, you're talking about you know everybody from your uh, immediate you know, team at work, your, your assistant, your C, your COO, your boyfriend is a huge, yeah. is, I don't want to call him a character because he's an actual real person, yeah. <laughs> but he, he's a huge factor in this book. Your parents, your parents who mm-hmm. hilarious, the only people I've ever heard of who are ambivalent about, uh, meeting an Obama, but, um, <laughs> you know, like we don't talk about this enough, I think on the podcast, which is this whole, you know, I've been trying to tease it lately. <laughs> a little bit more because I'm like, this is tricky business, right? You know, like, and I, I'm yeah. saying this as I'm writing my own stuff. I'm like, it is tricky business to talk about real people yeah. <laughs> in real time. <laughs> so like, how are you navigating those kind of conversations? I mean, you know, you live with one of the, you know, basically yeah. your your biggest supporting character here in this particular yeah. <laughs> collection. So, yeah. How does that play out? Yeah, he, for the most part, knows like everything I'm going to write about him in the book um and he's really supportive and he's always like yeah that sounds great like he's never you have to take that out 
And then with my parents, I just have to write about my parents because if I give them a heads up, they're going to say, we don't want, we are private citizens. We don't want to be featured. So I just have to like, it's printed now. So you have to deal with it. But yeah, it's just so funny writing. I really enjoy writing about my parents because they are just capital over it. Like they are over everything. And so, you know, when I write about how Michelle Obama invited them to come to the Becoming Book event in Nashville and they were just kind of like, we don't feel like getting on a plane. I was just like, you guys are insane. Like, I know you are comfortable at home in Cleveland, Ohio, but please pack a suitcase because the queen of all queens wants to meet you. Um, and it just really made me laugh. And so I think I, whenever I write about people, I try to make sure I'm not sharing stories where I'm dragging someone because to me, I just, I, I just don't want that to be. I want my work to be, you know, sort of just captured, not dependent on like some terrible person I'm discussing. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. so even the situation or write about how I fired my first assistant, that was like a nuanced (laughs) discussion, you know, like it, it, it sucked, but it was also, but it was real. (laughs) It was was real. real. It's part of what being a boss is the part of recognizing, Oh, this person really isn't here for this job. They want a different job. And sort of like having that realization without villainizing them. Like, I don't want to be like, she's a garbage person. It's like, she's not a terrible person. She's someone in her 20s who said yes to a job when she really wanted another job that she probably couldn't get elsewhere. That is a tale as old as time. So I don't want to, you know, paint it as like, she's a monster. So I try, but I, you know, I changed her. I, I think it just made an initial, so it's fine. And I left out, you know, some details so she's not, like, identifiable at all. So I feel like I've done a good job of sort of writing about people. Um, And then also legal, you know, they look it over. Because they want to make sure we're not about to get sued or cussed out. So they were like, <laughs> you're good. Thumbs up. And I was like, great. <laughs> well, you know, anybody, I mean, and I say this as a manager where I work, you know, I mean, anybody who's been in management for any period of time, whether they're at the top of the chain or middle management like me, you know, identified somewhat with that. So we've all been in that position at least once Mm -hmm. where we're like, oh, baby, (laughs) (laughs) I don't think this is, I don't think this is what you thought it was. And it's definitely not what I thought it was. So (laughs) let's let's discuss. But, um, you know, you do something here uh, that I, I both admire and I appreciate in terms of having that conversation about Black women bosses. You know, we happened to be, in addition to coming out of this really wretched year, coming out of a period in which a ton of people, you know, countless, well, actually there is a count, hundreds of thousands of people <laughs> lost their jobs. And, and you know, we know that that was a disproportionate amount of women and a disproportionate amount of Black women who found themselves out of work either by uh, circumstance or necessity uh, due to the pandemic. Black women are starting businesses at a rate. I mean, this has been going on for years, but particularly now starting businesses at a rate that we've never seen before in history. And, you know, as a boss, you seem to be kind of trying to provide some guidance here in mm-hmm. terms of, you know, like our real practical world, you know, as you, as you kind of say, you know, like, where is our lean in? Like, where is our yeah. thing? Cause we know that this play, I mean, even lean in will tell you this plays out differently for black women. I work with lean in mm-hmm. all the time. They will tell you this is not the same conversation that black women are having in the office, like wh- yeah. wherever we are in the organization. Um, what is your hope, I guess, in terms of not just what you have to offer as a black female boss, but in terms of encouraging more of us to, 
take that leap or at least when we take it to do it well? Yeah, I mean, I think business in general is very intimidating and scary. And, you know, as I wrote about in the book, leaders don't often want to share any information or they want to give you sort of surface level kind of stuff that could fit on like a bumper sticker or a magnet. And so I think in general, society has to do a big shift in sort of the things that they encourage women to do. You know what I mean? And it's very rare to hear someone encourage a little girl, especially a little black girl. Oh, you're smart. You're, you, you're, you have business savvy or you should, you should, this thing that you love doing, you could turn that into a business. That's not, that's not what people want from black women. They want us to entertain. They want us to be funny. They want us to, you know, have this incredible fashion that they could steal, you know, the vernacular, all that sort of cultural stuff they want to sort of take from us, but wanting our contributions on a a level that's going to shape business um, is just not what is expected of us or wanted from us. And so it takes a minute to sort of rewire your brain and realize, you know, like even for me, I had to go like, oh yeah, I am a boss. Like you just, I just didn't look at myself like that. Like I was like, I know I have employees, but I don't feel like a boss. And I was like, bitch, you are a fucking boss. What are you talking about? You employ people. I mean, that imposter syndrome is real, right? Like, I mean, you know, whatever you want to call it, that whole thing that we do, where we kind of like, as women, we do it. As black women, we do it. We kind of like downplay whatever, you know, like, let me just shrink to fit in this little, you know, like, oh, no, no, it's not that big a deal. You know, and I love that you made the distinction between a boss and a leader. Because those are two different things. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. They're two different things. I think a boss can certainly lean more towards being a dictator. And I think a leader wants to sort of take the tools that they see in all their employees and bring out the best of them in order for them all to build something together that is going to benefit everyone. And so that's what I try to do with my work. And I really try to sort of set that example of, hey, you can, if you have an idea, throw it out there. Hey, if you think this is uh, an avenue that we should go down, let's go for it. Like, I'll give you an example with my production company, my head of development, Jose Acevedo. um, He's fantastic. And there's a lot of things that we like. So there's like a lot of overlap, but there are other things that he's super into that I'm like, I'm not that into and vice versa. He's really into animation. And so he brought this project to to me. He'd been talking to this writer and it's this um, animated project about these like, three 20 something girls and, and like it's really funny and interesting and like kind of like dirty and raunchy but like super smart and all that kind of stuff and he brought it to me and I just was like oh animation I don't know if I really want to do that but then I read the pitch document and the, you know the outline for the pilot script and I was like oh this is amazing we should try and do this and now we have this in development with the network and it's exciting to just sort of have someone be like hey you know here's this thing you're overlooking that could be really cool for us. And I could have been like, no, this is not my idea. So no, but I I said, okay, let me hear you talk about it. And then I got into it. And so I think that's a sign of a good leader to sort of recognize that you're not always going to have the ideas. You're not, you're certainly not always going to have the best ideas, but if you can sort of foster an environment where everyone around you feels comfortable tossing out ideas, then you'll get the best work out of everyone. Well, you know, I love that you talked about your production company because, you know, so often 
among our guests, we have a lot of writers who write the book or have written the pitch and have those great agents. And then all of a sudden it's in development. And I, I would assume that with you, there's, I mean, with you, first of all, you had the production company first. <laughs> so yeah. it's like kind of like this interesting reverse process. But, you know, are these books in development for the screen? Are we going to see some of these crazy scenarios make it yeah. to the screen? <laughs> <laughs> well, my second book, Everything's Trash, But It's Okay, is in development with Freeform, which has okay. been a really fun process. So TV development is so slow. That's what I always tell everyone. I'm like, you need to learn how to have patience. So I'm really excited about that. And then hopefully with my imprint, as we you know establish a production company even more, we can also like start developing some of these books into either like streaming movies or TV shows. So I'm always trying to think like a few steps ahead of like where I, I want know, I'm things like, to be. I'm like, look at you cutting out the middleman. You're just like, I'm gonna take it straight through. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I like it. I like it a lot. Uh, well, you know, obviously, I would be remiss, and I know that our regular listeners, especially our aspiring writers or our actual writers, are going to kill me if I don't ask, what are you looking for at Tiny Reparations Books? As people submit the kind of projects, like what are you looking for? Cool. Yeah, that's a great question. So we are publishing literary fiction, nonfiction, essay collections, and then we're now dabbling into poetry, which is really exciting. We have, including my book, 11 books on the slate, and all the authors on my slate are debut authors, which is really exciting for me. I'm like, oh my God, we get to birth these books together. So I'm really pumped about that. But I really, I'm really looking for very voice-driven work, whether it's in an essay collection or a novel, just something where you go, that is that person. That is not someone who's trying to be another kind of author. Like, this is intrinsically who this person is. I want, you know, we could talk about real shit. We could also do some lighter stuff. You know, I'm interested. Like, we have a, a biography about Marsha P. Johnson coming out by this fantastic artist, um, Tourmaline. So I'm really excited about that. We have an art heist book written by Grace D. Lee about five twenty something Chinese Americans who are hired to steal Chinese artwork from museums and bring it back to China. So it really, you know, that's like a different thing than a biography, but it has this like this, you know, this personality to it and this like you get really caught up, like, are they gonna get caught? Um, and then you're you're discussing like identity and relationships between parents and child and like how that works as you get older as a child. And so I really want my books to each have their own lane within the imprint, but I think they're all under the umbrella of these are stories from underrepresented communities that are interesting, that are universal, that are specific, that are funny sometimes but they always stick with you. That's the thing. It's like, if I close the manuscript when I get submitted and I'm still talking about that manuscript a couple of days later, I know that the people reading this are going to be talking about that book a couple of days later. Well, I mean, that's a great sign. And obviously, first up is please don't sit on my bed in your outside clothes. So, <laughs> you know, this comes out on September 28th. I hope people will grab it. I hope they will enjoy it as much as I did. <laughs> I hope they will look at their self-care practices differently and their hygiene. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I went through uh, it during quarantine. I really did. <laughs> I think, to your point, a lot of us thought this was going to be our year. And here we are. Here we yeah. are. But. Thank you so much for, for writing this very fun book that I do think we all desperately need, especially as this whole K-12 
chaos rages on. And thank yeah. you for coming to visit us on It's Lit today, Phoebe Robinson. And hopefully it won't be the last time. And I'm hoping we'll see some of your writers here in the future. So yes, there you go. I would love that. Thank you so much for having me. I love talking about books. This was so fun. Fun for us as well. Thank you so much. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. The Root Presents It's Lit is produced by myself, Maisha Kai, and I could not do any of this without my co-producer, Michaela Heck. Our sound engineer is Ryan Allen. Our theme song was penned by yours truly and producer Scott Jacoby. If you like the show and want to help us out, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really, really helps us out, and we appreciate your feedback so much. Now, if you have any thoughts or feedback, you can always find me on Twitter at Maisha. That's M-A-I-Y-S-H-A and at Maisha Kai on Instagram. And before we go, we always like to talk a little bit about what we're reading. 50 episodes in, I am still reading tons of books each week. And this week I am reading a book by another funny woman, a Yvonne Orji. Now, if you don't know Yvonne Orji, you have clearly not been watching Insecure on HBO, which is now about to enter its final season. And I am reading her book, Bamboozled by Jesus. <laughs> uh, you know, there's a lot to say here, and we're going to have Yvonne on soon to talk about it, so I'm not going to spoil it for you guys. In the meantime, that's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next week. In the meantime, keep it lit.